it went from what I thought was going to be, okay, fairly quiet deployment to something that was anything but that. Around, I think it was August, September is when everything started to kick off with ISIS. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The single greatest sacrifice I've made is my family. There were a couple of public beheadings. In order to kill, you've got to be really bit angry. Not psychotic, but just angry. We could look down Frankfurt and see it on fire. Stuff blowing up everywhere. There will be no surrender. And then they had to fight an enemy in amongst we got children. Got children. Going to I could quite never often. not go back. They were my friends and they felt the top like of our She did say, you've changed. Soldier put everything on the line to help one of our blokes. Today's podcast is with Royal Australian Air Force Servicewoman, Dee Cherry. I spoke with Dee about her relative, a recipient of the Victoria Cross, as well as her time in uniform and her extensive work in the veterans community. I'm Alex Lloyd, speaking today with Dee Cherry. Dee, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Where were you born, Dee? I was born in a small town called Dramana on the Mornington Peninsula in Victoria. And what are your earliest childhood memories of the military? Of the military? Oh, I don't know if I had any childhood memories. I probably, probably wasn't until I joined that I discovered more about the military and my family's involvement. Probably my earliest would be knowing that my pa had served in the army. So I knew he was a military man. He'd served, I think, for over 20 years in the army. So that might be my earliest memory. Had he deployed anywhere or he was a career army man? or Both. So he was a Korean War veteran. So I think as a child, what I knew about him was, yeah, he'd fought in the Korean War. He was a warrant officer, I believe, and had been in for over 20 years. And he'd fought in the community for the government to recognise Korean War veterans and the subsequent medical issues that they developed as a result of their service. So I knew that he was heavily involved in the veteran community. So war and military culture, it's not a big thing in the family. It's just a normality, part of the background for you. Yeah, I guess I only knew really about him as a child. And then as I became a teenager, I knew that we had more of a family history. Uh, my uncle, sorry. My uncle was also in the army. My father is um, one of, I think, eight. That's quite impressive. <laughs> yeah, so my uncle had also been in the army. And so I knew of my uncle and my pa, and also my auntie had been in the Air Force as well, three in the military there. So it wasn't until I became a teenager that I guess I started to discover more. And I knew that my brother really wanted to be in the army. He wanted to be in the army, I guess, from day one. So, Were you ever dragged to Anzac Day marches and parades and things like that or photos on the shelves? Or I'm just trying to get a picture of how present it was in your life. I wouldn't say it was too present because my both my mother and my father weren't in the military. It wouldn't be a significant memory growing up. Talk to me about Percy Cherry. So Captain Percy Cherry is somebody within our family line. He's a cousin. I probably started to know more about Percy when I had joined the Air Force and I started talking to my auntie, who's the family historian, about our connection to Percy. There's a lot of information written about Percy. So he was a captain in the Army in the 26th Battalion. He's a Victoria Cross winner as well as a Military Cross winner or recipient. The amazing thing about Percy is he was sent all over 
And it wasn't just one action that, I guess, that gave him the Victoria Cross or the Military Cross. It was subsequent action. So it was just the way he was. He was an amazing, courageous man. He went to Gallipoli, but he also served in the Western Front. He was injured numerous times. He would recover, be treated, and then he'd go back out again. When you actually look up the information about Percy Cherry, each time that I guess he did an action, a courageous action within a battle and then received an award such as the Victoria Cross, you can see that it was just part of who he was and how he led as an officer. So he's amazing. So there's so many examples of things that he did. But one, for example, he was in a duel with a German. So my understanding is they were both in a pit and they were firing at one another. So just the two of them firing back and forth. Um, They fired at the exact same time and Percy was hit, but he wasn't killed, but his shot hit the German. The most amazing thing to me is that once he hit the German, he ran over to him. As the German lay dying, the German handed him a packet of letters and asked that he deliver them to his, I think it was his love or something like that, you know, and Percy promised him he would. And with that, the German died. So I guess for me, I think it just shows you the compassion of the man, you know. So he, on one hand, he's this courageous soldier, you know, that will fight to the end, but then he's still a human being. They're all still human beings. And he ran over to tend to him. So I thought that was amazing. That's an incredible story. That compassion is beautiful to hear because like you say, it's not heroes and villains. It's all beating hearts and real people underneath the uniforms. Absolutely. You know, I guess nobody likes war and they're just doing their job, both the German, you know, and Percy. So that's just one example. Another example, which I believe he received the military cross for, was um, he was leading a group of men and he saw, I believe they were Germans. There was machine gun turrets up on a hill. He noticed a gap in the wire. Like there was a wire fence, I believe. He noticed the gap. And without thinking, he just he ran he took the opportunity to just run through that gap. He ran as fast as he could, right up to the two machine guns, took out the men behind them, and then turned the machine guns round, firing them at the fleeing Germans. That is something you'd see in a comic book movie. Yeah, absolutely. If they were to make a movie about him, you know, they'd have a lot of amazing examples. You know, I mean, without hesitation. So he was the officer at the time, you know, he could have directed some of his troops to go up and do that, but he didn't. That's one of the things I like about him. He wouldn't ask anyone to do anything that he wouldn't do himself. So he just ran up and did it instinctively. And before the war, he was an expert apple packer. (laughs) He was. Lived most of his life in Tasmania and his father owned an apple orchard. I think he'd won a few competitions picking apples. So, yeah, he was a bit of an expert. But to come from that background and find yourself in Gallipoli and the Western Front performing such heroic acts without hesitation to earn a Victoria Cross and a Military Cross is an amazing story. How did it end for him? Both of those awards were awarded posthumously, so he wasn't aware that he had ever received those amazing awards. He was leading a group of men and they were sent to clear a village in France. I think they had strong enemies within the village. So he cleared that village. I think that battle raged on for a couple of days. He was determined to clear the village. So I think the reason he received the VC for that action was just the way in which he did it. He refused to leave his post. So he organised regular bombing parties. He was regularly providing updates over radio as to where the enemy's position was, things like that. He organised his men to fight the enemy. The battle raged on and it got to the point where he was the last, I believe, the last officer alive. 
you know, so he had all these men, not just his men, I guess, but the men of the other officers that he felt responsible for. He refused to back down or leave. He knew they had to clear the village. It was really important to do that. He refused to give up. He was shot and wounded. And even then he refused to be, I guess, evacuated. And he ended up clearing the village, refusing to leave his post. And he was killed instantly by a shell. It's a very tragic yet heroic end that he refuses the order to retreat. He stays behind. He displays some ingenuity throughout that the Germans are firing flares to mark the Australian position. He finds some of these flares and fires them away to add confusion to the battle and then to think it ends so quickly, so suddenly for him and he would never know how fondly he'd be remembered and how well known he would be. Yeah, that's right. I guess if it wasn't for, you know, the way in which he was tactically holding his position, organising the men underneath him and his determination to stay put, I guess they wouldn't have cleared the village, which is what ended up happening. They did clear the village and they were able to take that land. So, yeah, and he didn't know. Well, you've come from quite an impressive stock of military family. When do you first set your sights on potentially joining the military yourself? From memory, I would have been in year 10 or 11 when my brother would have been talking consistently about joining the army and so I started to think that I would probably join the military but I didn't want to do it straight away. I knew that I wanted to finish school. I mean, I liked to study. I wanted to go to university and it was something that I would do down the track. So I kind of parked that idea and thought I'll do it when I feel ready but I hadn't decided which service. I knew it wasn't going to be Navy because I just couldn't picture myself on a ship for so long so it was either going to be the Army or the Air Force. I guess it wasn't until I was actually at university procrastinating when I was supposed to be doing one of my assignments but instead I just started to Google things on the computer in the library and I thought I should actually have a look do a bit of research and figure out which service I actually want to join when I feel the time's right. So it was at that point that I had decided on the Air Force. I thought that I was doing a Bachelor's of Business and I thought where could I utilise this degree most and I thought that the Air Force sounded like it suited my personality and that I'd be able to utilise my degree the most. So I kind of decided on the Air Force but I still wasn't ready. So parked it again and thought it'll be something I'll look into at least now I've decided which service. And when do you finally sign the dotted line? So it wasn't until I was 25. So I finished uni. I'd taken a break, I think midway through uni to travel around the world and live in the UK for a year because I'm very passionate about travel. So I've done a lot of traveling. I also worked in the UK. I worked in insurance. I came back to Australia and got a job at American International Group, an insurance company. And I really loved that job. I met some great people, continued to travel all around the world on whatever holidays I could. That's where all my money went. Yeah, and it wasn't until I was 25 that I decided. And I think the thing for me was I had a great job. It was a really great company. I worked with great people, but I just didn't feel challenged. I just couldn't see myself, I guess, working my whole life to contribute to shareholders. And I just needed something more. I wanted to contribute to something more than myself. I'm very patriotic, you know, my family is, and I felt a sense of obligation. And I thought also that it would be just really, I think back then I thought it'd be really cool as well to be able to continue the family legacy. And so, yeah, I was 25 years old when I decided to join the Air Force. And by this stage, your brother had also signed up? Yeah, so my brother was already in the army when I decided to join. I think he'd been in two years already. I knew that he loved it. The army suited him. You know, he had a sense of direction. He was going away. He was getting some really great training and things like that. So I knew he enjoyed it and I knew the Air Force would be quite different. I was quite excited for the challenge and to do something different. I'm somebody that doesn't like to stay still in one job for too long. 
you know, and I'm always looking for the next challenge. So, I mean, what's a greater challenge than joining the ADF? So, Tell me about your training. I went to officers training school as a direct entry. I completed my bachelor's of business. So I completed four and a half months of officer training at East Sale in Victoria. It was great. You know, I mean, at the time, you know, you have hard times during training and really great times, a lot of highs and lows. They push you to your absolute limits and then test you, testing you mentally, really, I guess, for officer training. So they're trying to drain you physically to then see how you perform mentally as a leader. I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed pushing myself to the limits. The people that I met were amazing that were on my course, still keep in touch today. And I look back today and I just think, what a great time. Even the things when we were being screamed at or we were told we had an exam with no notice and things like that, no time to prepare, you know, having the room inspections, everything like that. I mean, you look back now and you laugh. You just think what a great time it was. Where was your first posting in Australia? So my first posting was actually to Glenbrook, RAF base Glenbrook in the Blue Mountains. It's a very quiet base. So a very small base was to 325 Expeditionary Support Squadron. And what was your role? It was strange, actually. I joined the Air Force as a what they call an admino, an administration officer, and the name has now changed to personnel capability officer. I guess the way I can describe it is essentially personnel or human resources with a big focus on policy and providing advice to commanding officers. My first job, it wasn't actually a PCO or admino role, so it was quite strange. I was there for nine months only before I had another posting. So it was quite a short posting. What came next for you? So after my first posting, I was then posted to Directorate of Personnel Air Force in Canberra at Russell Offices. And I worked in Administrative Sanctions Area and the Medical Employment Classification Review Board section. That was really good. I really enjoyed that. Whilst that's, I guess, strategic kind of level policy posting, not at a squadron, I really liked being able to make a meaningful difference at the very end. So I guess these cases would have come through squadrons where a PCO would have coordinated these cases, looked after the people who may possibly have medical issues as far as they possibly could, and then these cases would be sent to um, the personnel headquarters to make a final determination. So we would look over all of the evidence that was presented, the information from the workplace, the information from the member themselves as to what their wishes were. This is for people with medical issues, whether they wanted to remain or whether they were ready to go. We'd look after all the medical information, and then we would make a recommendation to a delegate on the decision that should be made that was in the best interests of the organisation and the best interests of the member. How is your business background shaping or influencing your capability in these roles? I've had a variety of jobs before I joined the military, not just my business degree. It's helped me all the way through. But I think, funnily enough, my experience in insurance, dealing with insurance claims and policy and things like that has really helped me. In that industry, I guess I learnt to have a really sharp focus on attention to detail, becoming a policy expert, understanding definitions of words and things like that. I'm sure that all sounds very boring to a lot of people, (laughs) but I have taken that throughout my career in the military because as you move up in rank, I guess, and experience and you go into more strategic roles, it's really important that you have a really strong focus of attention to detail, that you are reading a policy correctly, that you're interpreting the policy correctly so that you can provide the best advice to command so that they can execute their responsibilities when it comes to their people and the welfare of their people. I worked in an insurance office 
briefly as a summer uni job and I understand the attention to detail aspect you're talking about. It's very important to that role and it's a good skills development. Absolutely. Tell me about your posting at Four Squadron. So this was, I guess, my favourite posting. So lucky for me, I have had a variety of postings in my career. So I was posted to Four Squadron at RAF Base Williamtown um, in New South Wales. Four Squadron, although they're such a small squadron when it comes to, you know, I guess a lot of squadrons could be 180 to 300 people, whereas Four Squadron, I think, only had maybe like 80 people. So they were under 100, but they punched above their weight. So I loved it. It was flat out. So Four Squadron, they have an operational role as well as a training role. So they have the PC-9 aircraft. They also run the JTAC school, which is a joint terminal attack controller. They are the only, I believe, or they were the first at that time, foreign institution to actually hold the JTAC accreditation from the United States. Yeah, they're running the JTAC course, which is having participants all across Australia and internationally come to do the JTAC qualification. And they also have the only Air Force Special Forces element within that squadron as well, the combat controllers. Tell me more about them. So combat controllers, and I hope I do all these combat controllers justice, essentially, I guess, just to explain to the non-ADF person, a combat controller is somebody who, I guess, calls in airstrikes with close air support or CAS in the area. So they have such a significant role. The training for a combat controller is up to two years worth of training. They're also JTAC qualified, and they often will embed themselves with the commando units and SOTG. So, you know, it's one guy or girl and they have, I guess, the most important piece that they carry with them is a radio, you know, and it's their responsibility to manage all of the air assets that are nearby and to ensure that they know where friendlies are, where they know where enemy is and to to decide on what close air support is required and to call in airstrikes when required. So they need to know information about, I guess, the load of the aircraft, the weapon systems on board the aircraft, the effect that those weapon systems will have, the effect that dropping that airstrike will have on friendlies or enemies or even civilians nearby. So they have a lot of responsibility on their shoulders in the work that they do, and they do an amazing job. So like I said, the training is two years long. They are commando qualified so they'll get the um, beret commando beret and they do the commando reinforcement cycle training as well so they are an amazing capability the air force is very lucky to have tell me more about some highlight memories from your time with four squadron the great thing about four squadron was it had great executive staff it had an amazing co and the co was really intent on everybody at the squadron understanding the capability that four squadron provided to Air Force and the wider ADF. So that meant that no matter what role you did, whether you're in administration, you're in logistics, or you're a pilot, that everybody should have the same level of understanding of the capability. So everybody had the opportunity to see firsthand, I guess, the JTAC training and things like that. So I think that's really great of the CO to do that because having that understanding allows you to work out how your job contributes to the squadron being able to provide the capability for the wider Air Force. And when you have that understanding, it allows you to do your job to a higher standard. So some of the highlights that I have is going out on exercises with the squadron. The CO allowed me to shadow a JTAC in training while they were completing their assessment, which meant if I could keep up running around the bush, 
you know, and stay in the background, then I could go along. So that was pretty amazing. I remember running along the bush following this JTAC, watching all the equipment that this JTAC had, thinking, oh my gosh, I don't have anything like that on my back, yet I'm puffed. And the amount of pressure that a JTAC is under in their final assessment is really difficult. I remember climbing up a mountain and then being on a rock face as F-18 fighter jets screamed over the top of us and dropped like a 500-pound bomb. That was an amazing experience, just looking above thinking oh my gosh that aircraft is so close you know you felt like you could jump up and touch it obviously it wasn't that close but (laughs) that's the feeling you know there's nothing like hearing that sound and being able to see the aircraft do its magic like that what year are you posted there so i believe i was there from 2012 until 2014 by that point in your career do you have goals you want to achieve for yourself are you wanting to to pull overseas or achieve a certain other kind of posting Absolutely. So by that point, I hadn't deployed and that's all I wanted to do. Like most people in the ADF, we get this first class training, these amazing opportunities. But the one thing we want to do is put that to test and actually deploy. So I was so eager to deploy and I had the full support of my CEO or my commanding officer. So even though we're an extremely busy squadron and it meant that the squadron would have to, I guess, pick up that slack, you know, I was really supported in being able to do that. So yeah, I deployed from four squadron to the Middle East in 2014. So tell me about that time you first get to represent your country overseas in uniform. Where are you sent? So in 2014, I was deployed to El Minhad Air Base in the UAE as a staff officer to the Chief of Staff at Headquarters Joint Task Force 633 and also as the J10. I guess the way to explain J10 is one stands for personnel. So I would be like the deputy personnel. So I did two kind of roles while I was deployed over there for six and a half months. What was your initial impression of the country? Dusty, hot. I was deployed in the hot months. And I remember getting off the plane, felt like the middle of the night and thinking, oh my God, it is so hot. And then somebody saying to me who was already there, this isn't hot. Wait till it actually gets really hot. I thought, oh my God, I was so worried that I was going to get a headache. I don't cope too well in the heat. I was drinking like crazy. Yeah, you get there in the middle of the night. I guess you're kind of rushed through doing all the admin and paperwork that you need to do. You get your luggage off. They tell you you can go to your accommodation block. You've got about, I don't know, half an hour to an hour, I guess, to have a shower and then to meet back into a room to do your, I guess, arrival briefings and start your training that you have in theatre. So in all your eager travelling in your earlier years, had you ever made it to that part of the world or was this your first time? No. So although I'd been all around the world, I actually hadn't been to the Middle East. So I was excited on one hand, not only to deploy in my role as an ADF member, but I was excited personally to, you know, visit another part of the world that I hadn't been to. What does your day-to-day there involve? Funny thing is, I was under the impression that I was going to have a fairly quiet, benign deployment because at that point we were, Australia was withdrawing from Afghanistan in 2014. So my understanding was, you know, we'd be coordinating personnel. A lot of ADF members would be withdrawing from Afghanistan and they would come to El Minhad Air Base before they would fly back to Australia. So we'd be coordinating that aspect of it, all the personnel matters there. 
as a staff officer, the chief of staff, I would act in a very similar role, I guess, as a personnel capability officer, because we are part of our role is to be a staff officer to the CO. So I utilised those skills, you know, and just ensured, I guess, on a day-to-day basis that he was attending all the meetings that he needed to, he had all the briefs that he needed to, managing incoming outgoing correspondence, as well as managing, I guess, the orderly room, the administration room within the headquarters as well, and attending daily briefings. It went from what I thought was going to be, okay, fairly quiet deployment to something that was anything but that. Ended up being one of the busiest periods, I believe. Around, I think it was August, September is when everything started to kick off with ISIS. So that's when ISIS became more powerful. They started to control, I guess, more areas and more cities within Iraq. There were a couple of public beheadings that were quite horrible. Thousands and thousands of displaced civilians within Iraq. As you're watching these horrific actions start to unfold, you know you're in the region. How do you feel about that? So as we're watching all of this happen, I knew that, okay, the focus is going to change. It's going to change from, I guess, a withdrawal from Afghanistan to focusing on supporting the local population in Iraq and also the coalition. So I guess as this was happening, we started to hear announcements from the US. You know, they started to deploy more troops to fight ISIS in Iraq and to support the local population there. And we knew it was just a matter of time until the Australian government would announce a similar thing to support the coalition in their objectives. Essentially, that's exactly what happened. The Australian government announced that hundreds of ADF members would be deployed to the Middle East in support of the coalition. So at that point in time, I believe I was the J10 in the joint operations room. So the J1's role is that he or she is a principal staff officer in regards to personnel for all ADF members within the Middle East region. So they could be in El Minhad, they might be in Iraq. It's a very wide area of responsibility. That's right. So as the J10, you're like the deputy. So your job is to, I guess, manage personnel coming in and out of theatre, moving on from El Minhad Air Base, going to Afghanistan and other areas like that, looking after any welfare aspects, as well as any mortuary affairs, deaths of family members as well, because that happened quite a lot. So there is no one typical day. I guess you wake up, you go into the joint operations room, which is like completely secure and blacked out. You can't have a phone in there. And you have all of the principal staff officers for every aspect essentially sitting in that operations room as well as watch keepers. Yeah, I was in that role at the time when the focus started to change. So all of a sudden we had hundreds and hundreds, I think up to 600 ADF members that would be arriving in theatre on very short notice. So that is a huge task to suddenly have to work out, okay, are we actually ready for them? What do we need to do? Who are the people coming in? We needed to get their details from Australia. It's a lot of liaison going on between areas within Australia to find out where these people are coming from, when are they flying in, all of this information. Do they have the relevant qualifications? Have they completed their pre-deployment training, you know, and coordinating that so that it's as seamless as possible so that they can get on and achieve the mission objectives that the Australian government has set. I guess the one thing I remember was that it was a really exciting time. We didn't quite know you know, what was going to happen. We just roll with it. That's what we do in the ADF. We get given, I guess, mission objectives and we just make it happen. The thing that I love about it, I mean, the energy was really high. This is the great thing about the ADF is that everybody comes together and works as a team and does what they need to do to ensure that we can meet those objectives. So it was just watching everybody come together and do what's needed to be done. Dee, tell me about some of the highs and lows over your deployment in the UAE. I had more highs than I did lows. 
And in that respect, I'm lucky because every deployment is different for every ADF person. So one of the highs that I had was, I guess, that change in focus, watching everybody come together and work together as an amazing team. The thing that I was really proud of was the RAF was actually at the forefront of this change. So the government support to the coalition was going to be air focused. We weren't going to put troops on the ground. So being an Air Force member in a headquarters, which was technically tri-service, but it had a lot more army than anything, was quite exciting to be an Air Force member on an overseas deployment when we were at the forefront of that. So I knew I suddenly had these hundreds of ADF members that were coming over actually Air Force. So that was really exciting to be able to, I guess, be there when my fellow service members were arriving. So one of the highs that I have... The RAF being at the forefront, initially we were there to provide support ups such as aid drops to the displaced civilians in Iraq, but that quickly changed to combat operations with our strike aircraft coming over. I'll never forget the moment that I was on the flight line watching F-18 Super Hornets take off to go fight ISIS. That was an amazing experience and I remember at the time thinking, wow, this is something in history and I'm standing here on the flight line And this is amazing. And I just felt so proud at that moment to be an Air Force member in particular. I guess the other high for me was being able to get my campaign medals presented by the Governor-General. I was lucky enough to still be deployed when the Governor-General visited. So I had my medals presented, yeah, by the Governor-General on deployment. My face ached because I was smiling so hard. (laughs) So, yeah, that was pretty amazing. And another amazing experience was I was lucky enough to be there for Anzac Day. So I experienced an Anzac Day service on deployment, which was unique. It was very different, you know. We didn't have a parade. We had a a quiet ceremony, dawn service. It was just different. It was really nice. I mean, Anzac Day for me is a time of reflection for everybody that's sacrificed through every campaign and every war. Well, it traces from Percy right through to all five generations of your family. That's right. So every Anzac Day, I particularly remember and reflect on Percy and the amazing man that he was, but also as well, I guess, all the ADF people who've made that ultimate sacrifice. Where I sat in my job was across from, I guess, the Wall of Honour, which had all of the photos of ADF members that had died whilst deployed. So, you know, that was a remi- an everyday reminder of why we were, you know, here to continue, I guess, the legacy that these people had left. Would that wall have grown much during your deployment or not really as we were pulling out of Afghanistan? It did. And I guess that was one of the lows. Whilst I was deployed, we had a death in surface. Lance Corporal Todd Chigi died. Yeah, that was probably one of the lows. I didn't know Todd at all, but I guess you feel like it's a family member, especially when you're deployed over there and being part of the ramp ceremony. And when a death in service happens like that and you are deployed and you're in the headquarters the whole vibe of the headquarters changes you know everybody goes into action mode as to what needs to occur you know when the death happens and everybody is reflecting and things like that i know i mean i used to go to church nearly every sunday and i remember i think the sunday after that that church was just a little bit more full there were people there you know who needed to be there for themselves you know and you've got to remember as well everybody is away from their family and their social supports You know, and a death can bring up lots of different memories for people. Yeah, that was a hard, hard day, I guess, when we were part of the ramp ceremony. Anyone who's been part of a ramp ceremony would know exactly how that feels. You know, and I have to say that, you know, I actually think about him often, you know, especially on Anzac Day. So every now and again, you know, I'll reflect and remember and think about him. 
So, yeah, that was probably the lowest low on that deployment. What came next for you? So after I returned from deployment, I'd been away for six and a half months. I then was posted back to Melbourne. This was the first posting I guess I'd had in Melbourne where I'm from. So I was really excited about that. And I was posted as a military support officer to Defence Community Organisation. So my job was to provide support to command, but I was at the forefront of dealing directly with families. So we did critical incidents. So an ADF member who was critical and in ICU or had died, if they died or been killed, the ADF provides an amazing support service to the families. I would be, I guess, the face of the ADF. So I would arrange travel for that family to get to the bedside of that ADF member and I would be there to greet them and take them straight to the hospital and spend that time with them for the entire time that that member was critical. Or in the event of a death, we would be there to help them through and explain all of the military, I guess, entitlements and support services available to them leading up until the funeral and then some months after that. It's a very sombre responsibility. It is, but I think it's really important You know, it was never lost on me the difference that you can make in somebody's life in the worst point of their life. So that was always at the forefront of my mind. And, you know, I dealt with some amazing families that, I guess, inspire you with their resilience, just how close they are and what they've had to deal with. So, yeah, it was a role that I think was an amazing opportunity to do some good for families. What are some standout memories of your various deployments through to your current role today? Every posting I've had, I've had highs and lows, but at the end of the day, it's the people that you work with that can make or break a posting, you know, and can make it an amazing experience. So I think I've just had some amazing opportunities, the ability to go on exercise with squadrons and experience that, see the training that we put people through firsthand, dealing with families at the forefront of critical incidents. I guess one of the things, lucky for me, I'm also dual trained in a way. I'm also trained in public affairs and that starts out by the experience I had was on the other end of the camera I guess is um, briefing a commanding officer who might be preparing to do an interview, talking to him about I guess providing him with talking points, what he can and can't say or she can and can't say. From there because I was trained I've been called upon to actually be in front of the camera myself which initially is quite daunting when you're used to being behind. Each opportunity that I've had from there another opportunity has come out of that so I guess one of the greatest things that I think about the ADF is that we have such a great opportunity to be able to inform the community about what it is that we do because when you think uh, we know what we do you know we're in this ADF every day from a person who has no connection to the ADF all they see is what what's on television so I often feel like it's our obligation to get out there and actually raise the awareness of what a veteran is, break down those stereotypes, what it is we do, especially when it comes to the Air Force. When anyone thinks of the ADF, they probably automatically think of the Army. You know, so I think as Air Force members, you know, we can do an amazing service by just being out and about within our community and more involved. So I have taken every opportunity I can when a request comes through. So if when a school might put in a request around Anzac Day or Remembrance Day for an ADF person to come and do a speech, we get those all the time. Every year without fail, I will put my hand up. I don't say no to those things because I think they're really important, you know, and that's the first opportunity you have, especially at a primary school to break down the stereotypes for young kids and especially girls. You know, I want girls to know that they can do anything that they want to do. As long as they're willing to work hard and be committed, then they can be anything they want to be. So 
you know, I like to go there because I guess I'm not the stereotypical person you look at. I am a small female, you know, and I guess when you look at me, you wouldn't think I was in the ADF at all. I'm, you know, when I'm outside of work, I like to put makeup on, I have my hair down, I get my nails done. If when I go to a school, they, I guess they're quite... Shocked that some soldiers do wear makeup. <laughs> That's right. That Well, that you know, and then I'm in the Air Force and then I'm not actually a pilot because everyone thinks that everyone in the Air Force is a pilot. We have that many planes to go around, yeah. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I love doing that kind of work. I am involved with a number of organisations outside of the ADF. So I represent the Air Force Association in different capacities. So, you know, I'll get requests to attend different events and lay wreaths at different anniversaries and things like that. And wherever I can, I will do that. You're involved in a number of veterans' causes, Legacy, Young Veterans. Tell me about those. Yep, so Legacy. I've always been big on volunteering in the community. I think I've done volunteer work even when I was a teenager, you know, the 40-hour famine and things like that. So where I can, I always include it as part of my life. Um, It's just my focus has probably moved to, you know, the veteran space now that I'm in the ADF. So I joined Legacy when I came back to Melbourne. Legacy had always been a part of our family's life. They had helped my grandmother. So my grandmother is a war widow when my pa died and Legacy stepped in and helped the family there. So I knew that they'd done amazing work and I just needed the capacity within my schedule to join them. So when I went to Melbourne, I joined Legacy and became a fully-fledged legatee and a chair of my local branch. Legacy does some amazing work looking after the families of deceased or incapacitated veterans or veterans who have sacrificed their health for their service. So, And they're moving into doing a lot of work with younger veterans' families at the moment. So these veterans... I guess the focus has shifted, you know, previously the veterans would have died and they'd be taking care of the widows. Whereas nowadays our veterans are coming back home, but they're coming home with mental scars and that family needs just as much support. It just needs to be, I guess, tailored to that family. It's a different type of support. So Legacy is branching off into that space. They provide some amazing camps for the school kids, which provides respite for both parents, the veteran as well. They link the veteran and the family with some amazing support services. They provide financial funding for schooling for kids and things like that. So they do some great things and there's such variety in as a volunteer as what you can do. So whilst I was looking after some elderly war widows, you know, I was also helping out some teenagers, you know, legacy wards they call them. And I had the amazing opportunity to actually do the Kokoda Trek as an ADF mentor to a legacy ward. So the ADF partnered with Legacy for the 75th um, anniversary of the Kokoda campaign and 16 ADF members were selected from across Australia and they were matched up with legacy youth that were 18 to 25 whose parents had either died in service or were affected by their service. What a great and amazing experience. So I was matched with an amazing young girl called Ivy Tagato who was in her 20s and we got on so well and the idea was that you were to get to know your junior legatee or legacy ward train them up physically to prepare to do the Kokoda track, train them up mentally and build resilience with them as well and help them along the lines. And then we all did the Kokoda track together in August last year. And it was an amazing experience. These kids, well, they're not really kids, teenagers, pushed themselves to the absolute limits, you know, and the whole time we were there to support them as well. So it was beneficial for the ADF members as well. You know, it was a beautiful, I guess, linked to you know our past heroes as well and tell me about young veterans so young veterans is another organization 
I support and that I'm a member of. So Young Veterans, I think, was created by two brothers that were in the army. And essentially what they're there to do is to bridge that gap between the RSL and I guess some of the other ESOs with a focus on young veterans. So they do activities that are most suited to young veterans, things that we like to do. You know, and a lot of young veterans have mental health issues and what sometimes can come along with mental health issues is substance abuse. So the last thing a young veteran wants to do is sit in an RSL and drink alcohol, you know, or play the pokies. Can you define young veteran for me? Okay, so a young veteran is, I guess, a veteran and we don't try to discriminate with the word veteran. Anyone who's served and put that uniform on, in our eyes, is a veteran. So it doesn't matter where you did your service, whether you did war service, whether you did peacekeeping, whether you were deployed or not. The fact is you put a uniform on for your country, Army, Navy, Air Force, you're a veteran. So it's about bringing veterans closer together rather than using these, I guess, definitive terms to separate them because we're all one team. And it's post-1991 conflict. So that's what we mean by a young veteran. Young veterans tailors activities that are suited to that age group. So it's generally things that are outside, getting the veteran... Constructive, proactive. Absolutely, getting the veteran moving, things that don't involve alcohol. So whether they go and run a barbecue and do a weekly catch-up that way or whether they work on a car or something like that or they do a race team or they might do stand-up paddleboarding or something like that. And they're quite inclusive. They'll invite families, can come along as well. It's just about activities that are positive both mentally and physically. And I guess Young Veterans is also very big on using social media to not only advertise the events that they do, but also link in with the mainstream media to raise awareness about Young Veterans in general. Because what we need to do is have the public support and we need the public to understand that a veteran is not just a 95-year-old elderly male, you know, that served in World War II or served in Korea. You know, a veteran is also, you know, a 20-year-old female, you know, or a 30-year-old guy with three or four children, you know, and vice versa. So we just need to break down those barriers. So Young Veterans has a really good relationship with the mainstream media and we've done quite a few, I guess, media campaigns, you know, and they've been very supportive of everything that Young Veterans is doing. And what's the third organisation you're associated with? Uh, the RAF Association or the Air Force Association and as a part of that organisation I got the opportunity to represent the association at a forum that was set up by Department of Veterans Affairs. Now I know DVA has can have a really negative reputation within the veteran community. There's a lot of things that weren't great that were done in the past and there's still a long way to go with things that need to be improved for veterans. I know that. I know that firsthand, you know, from my family, my personal experience as well. But the great thing that I've always thought about is if you see an organisation that needs fixing, get involved with it. So when the opportunity came up for me to be on this forum, I jumped at it. And the great thing about, I guess, these forums is they're made up of veterans from all different ex-service organisations. So you've got the RSL there, you've got young veterans, you've got soldier on, you've got wounded warriors. So we're all members of these forums. Now, this forum that I'm on focuses on young veterans. There is another forum that focuses on females and families. And essentially, we are looking through all of the procedures and the policy DVA has and identifying areas that are not in the best interest of the veteran that need to be fixed. 
this is coming from a, I guess, a veteran-centric approach and it's all about what's doing best for the veteran and fixing things that need to be fixed. So we even do legislation workshops. So where we identify, I guess, a procedure, a policy that needs to be rectified, you know, and is not working for the veteran and in fact creating harm for the veteran, we might actually determine that that is actually legislative problem. So it's not just about changing a policy or procedure, we actually need to maybe make some legislative changes. So then we work with lawyers and we run legislation workshops where we actually sit there and come up with a way to change that legislation. So a lot of work is going into improving DVA and it can only get better. So I really do value my opportunity to make a difference to, I guess, myself and also, you know, the rest of the ADF veterans. You're an employee of the Royal Australian Air Force. You work with these three organisations doing policy work to assist veterans. You're doing camera work and trying to give the public a new image of veterans. You're going to schools. You're doing this huge range of stuff. How do you find the energy to keep giving? (laughs) I know, and I do have a problem with saying no, that's for sure. (laughs) Well, I'm glad you said yes to this podcast, but... It is hard, and sometimes you find that it does take over your life. But, you know, I guess... The energy I get is from the difference that we can make. The people that I meet within the community, and I'm really passionate about community engagement, I think the more ADF people get out there and talk to the community, the more we break down barriers, the more we raise awareness and the more support we get. I guess I get energy, yeah, from people who come up to me, little kids who come up to me and ask me about my service and ask me about the ADF, you know, or somebody who comes and says, oh, you gave a talk at our school two years ago and you inspired me to join the cadets or inspired me to do this or, you know, I decided to do my project on the Air Force or something like that. I think that's great because not everyone is going to join the ADF, but I do think it's important within the community that children are raised with an awareness about what the ADF does and the positive impact that we make to society. It's not just schools though. You've spent some time with the AFL. That's right. So through Young Veterans, I got the opportunity to film a piece with Channel 7 for the Anzac Day Clash. So every year, and I'm a huge Collingwood supporter, so I'm a paid up Collingwood member. And I'm sure now anyone listening is going to go, switch off right now. Please don't. That's why I saved this question for the end. (laughs) So I jumped at that opportunity. Channel 7 were really great about it. And the AFL and also Collingwood Football Club were really supportive. So it was a piece that we filmed that was played at halftime, the MCG and also all around Australia and actually around the world. I had a few people contact me who were saying, I'm overseas at the moment. I was watching the game. Oh my God, I saw you on TV. It was one of four people from different backgrounds. We were all younger veterans and just talking about our service and the experience that we'd have. And again, it's just breaking down the barriers, raising awareness. And it was great that we had the support of the mainstream media. And through that, we had the opportunity to tour the Collingwood club rooms. We got to speak to the boys in their training session. We didn't know that was going to happen. We thought we'd just have a tour of the club rooms. But Nathan Buckley was pretty amazing. He called all the boys in and said, look, these guys have got something to say. And we just talked about our service, you know, and they listened intently. And we talked about what it is to be, you know, a, a team player, you know, and how we rely on each other as a team the ADF and mateship kind of linked that back to I guess how they perform as a team and rely on each other yeah and it was just an amazing experience it's important work that you're doing where are you based now Dee? I was posted to Canberra short notice for the next I guess year and a half or so I'll be living in Canberra whilst my family remains in Melbourne yeah I'm posted to the ADF headquarters part of the chief of staff branch there in a personnel role I imagine throughout your career in the ADF, it has been tough and affected family life, personal life, because you get posted everywhere, all around the country, overseas. How have you coped with that? 
So I think, and I think this is an important thing, I guess, for people to remember who might be in the ADF and have only ever known the ADF and might be looking at transition. The thing that has helped me build resilience was that I guess I had done so much before I joined. So I joined later in life, you know, I joined at 25. So I'd already, I guess I'd already built a lot of resilience. I'd lived around the world, away from my family, travelled all around the world, moved into the city when my family was still back on the Mornington Peninsula, things like that. So I was quite independent and I know that not everyone has that opportunity because some people join when they're a lot younger. But the most important thing I've found is although you can easily have the ADF take up your entire identity it's important to remain balanced it's important to have a sense of identity that doesn't just relate to your service so linking in with your community doing something outside the ADF making sure that I kept my friendship groups that were separate to the ADF that has really helped me so that when things aren't great for you know, the ADF is more than a job. And when things aren't going great, if that's your entire life, then your whole world can collapse. So if you have balance, you know, and you have, I guess, interests and pursuits outside of the ADF, you have friendship groups outside of the ADF, then it becomes just one aspect that might be crappy in your life at that point in time rather than your whole life. You know, so I think that that really helps. And that's what has helped me for the moments where I've been away from my family and the majority of my service I have been. And I've been single for the majority of my service. So I haven't had a partner in a way that's easier because I've been able to go where I've needed to go. But in another way, I haven't had a support system right there with me, you know. So it's forced me, I guess, to yeah, make friends and build that support system up. And I always look to join a sporting club or something like that in the local community to build those support networks. And that's what's helped me get through, I guess, all of my postings around Australia and the different experiences that I've had. Dee Cherry, you have had quite an array of experiences. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Thank you for your ongoing service to our country and for your time today. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure as well. That was my conversation with Dee Cherry, recorded in Melbourne in July 2018. To hear the story of one of the co-founders of Young Veterans, go back to season one and listen to the gripping story of number 16, Chris May. Subscribe to this podcast in your app of choice. Also, subscribe to our e-newsletter by going to www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com forward slash subscribe. You can contact us through the website or on social media. We're on Twitter at LOTLpod and on Facebook and Instagram at Life on the Line Podcast. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions, artwork by Big Cat Design, music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget.